Good afternoon, my name is Brian Parks. I'm one of the pastors at Covenant Hope Church in Dubai. I'm glad you're listening in to our summer series of sermons through the Psalms. And today we're looking at Psalm 92. Have you ever wondered why God commands his people to praise him? Maybe you've wondered even why would the writers of the Bible tell us and urge us to praise God? Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, that may seem like a bit of a silly question, but put yourself in the shoes of someone who doesn't know God, who doesn't understand the Bible. If you think about it, when there's people around us, maybe leaders, maybe friends, maybe coworkers who need our praise, who want our praise, who in some ways beg us for praise. And when we think about those people, we think they're weak, they're needy. So why would the all-sufficient God of the universe command us to praise Him? You know, it's one of the questions that C.S. Lewis wrestled with before he became a Christian. C.S. Lewis was uh, one of the professors at Oxford University, and he became a Christian later in life. He writes in a book called Reflections on the Psalms about wrestling with that particular question on the subject of praise. Why would God have us praise Him? He wrestled with that question with the exact same questions that I posed just a second ago. But he then began to gain insight. Just after he had become a Christian, he wrote this, I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. There's praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, horses, children, and even sometimes politicians or scholars. You see, it began to make perfect sense to him that the psalmists of the Bible should urge us as well to praise God. It's one of the most natural things in all of life if you think about it. He goes on, the psalmists in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak about what they care about and what they consider to be of supreme value. Think about it for just a moment. Think about the times when you said, hey, have you been to that new restaurant that opened up? The food is delicious. Or have you seen that great movie? It's an incredible message and incredible acting. Or, what about that spectacular view from that particular vantage point? You see, we, when we see something of value, we naturally want to urge people to praise it as well. And wouldn't that be so true, and especially true, of the God of the universe, the one who is of supreme value? Well, we're looking at Psalm 92 this afternoon, and it is a psalm where... As you might expect, the psalmist urges us to praise God. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 92. Psalm 92. Follow along with me as I read. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. 
The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they're doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish, all evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree. They grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Let's ask the Lord for guidance and illumination as we examine his word. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. It is unlike the grass of the field that goes away in the evening and wilts and withers. It stands forever. And so, Lord, we pray that as you have spoken through your word, we pray that even now you will still speak through your word to us. O Holy Spirit, open our eyes, soften our hearts, teach us, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the main theme of this psalm could be stated like this. Praise the exalted Lord who defeats his enemies and blesses us with spiritual fruitfulness. Praise the exalted Lord who defeats enemies and blesses us with spiritual fruitfulness. We're going to look at this psalm in three different sections this afternoon, so there are going to be three points to it. But before we actually get into the verses, one of the first things that we notice about this psalm is the title, that it was written to be sung on the Sabbath a song to be sung on the Sabbath. Of course, the Sabbath was that one day of the week that God had given to the Israelites as a day of rest. It was the one day in a seven-day week when God wanted them to not do any work. No farming, no cooking, no buying, no selling. Even Israel's animals were to be rested on the Sabbath day. But for all the things that were not to happen on the Sabbath day, the one thing that was to happen was worship, corporate worship, worship through songs and singing full of thanksgiving and praise of God. We see that in this psalm, of course, and we see that in the first five verses of our psalm. That's our first of three points this afternoon. Sing his praise, sing his praise, verses one through five. Now, the psalmist isn't named. We don't know who he is. Perhaps it's David. Some of the things that are said in the psalm could certainly be true of David. But whoever he is, he tells us from the very start in verse 1 that it's good to give thanks. It's good, of course, because it's right. It's right for creatures to give praise to their creator. God has always intended his creation to praise him continuously. In fact, Psalm 19 begins, the heavens declare the glory of God, and they never stop. They don't just do it on the Sabbath. But mankind is the greatest of God's creations. We're created in His image. And of course, if the heavens are to declare the glory of God, certainly then so should people. 
It's not just good, of course, because it's appropriate for creatures to praise their Creator, but also because it's good for us as creatures. When we praise God and give Him thanks, we're setting our hearts and our minds on the goodness of God and how we've seen it in our lives, no matter how hard our life has been at that particular moment. And that's good for us. It lifts our eyes. It lifts our hearts. The second half of verse 1 tells us to sing His praises, not just tell them, but sing them, to lift our voices in song individually and together. And then in verse 3, we're to sing with musical accompaniment. The lute and the harp and the lyre were instruments. Of course, those are no longer in use now. King David would have played the ten-string lyre. They would have been familiar to Israelites. But I wonder if you've ever thought before that on the day when no work was to be done, God commanded music. God wanted His people to lift their voices to the tunes of music. Music that would praise Him. But there's even more that we learn about our singing to God. If you look at the end of verse 4, we're to sing for joy. Our emotions are to be engaged in our singing. We're to rejoice in God. And now some of the Psalms in the Bible, of course, they teach us to sing and lament sin and suffering that we're experiencing, wicked things that we see in the world. But here we're being urged to sing for joy because there's always things to rejoice in no matter how desperate and dire our lives become. The Westminster Catechism is a teaching tool for Christians. It's basically a list of questions and then answers from the Bible. And the first question of the Westminster Catechism is a very famous question. It is, what is the chief end of man? And of course, by the word end, it's asking about the purpose of man. What's man's chief purpose? Well, the answer of the Westminster Catechism, first question is this, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But C.S. Lewis tells us again this, but we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to, to glorify Him, God is inviting us to enjoy Him. When we enjoy God, we are naturally glorifying Him. And so when we sing for joy, we're glorifying God. To glorify God, of course, is to make His greatness either visible in our actions or audible with our voices visible in our actions or audible with our voices. That's how we glorify God. We make His greatness known. We magnify it, as the Bible says in a number of places. And singing glorifies God, and it's good for us. That's one reason that during this COVID-19 pandemic, that it's been such a difficult thing for churches and, and a hardship on Christians all around the world because we've been prevented in many places and at many times from gathering and meeting in person. It's prevented us from singing together for God's glory and for our good. Some churches, of course, have gone to a live stream and some like us have been recording sermons and putting them up online, encouraging people to sing certain songs and pray prayers before and after the sermon that they listen to in the privacy of their own home while they're quarantined. But Church literally means assembly. That's what the word means. It's a coming together of God's people. And so as helpful as Zoom 
and live streams have been, and they're better than nothing, they are a poor substitute for what God intends for his people. He intends for us to come together and lift our voices in song, in praise of him. Oh, how I long to be together with you, church. I have so missed singing together, hearing you sing praises to God, and your singing reminds me of his faithfulness and his love. And when we're able to gather again, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you, don't get used to staying home. Don't neglect gathering and don't neglect singing. Don't settle for online church in your bedroom or your living room. Yeah, it may be easy, but that's not the kind of assembling that God intends for us. He wants us to be physically together. God's people were saved to be together with one another. And be sure to lift your voice in song as a witness to the greatness of God. Don't just listen and read the words in the bulletin or what's projected up on the wall. Sing. Open your mouth. Honor God with your song. And listen, if you're a teenager or a youngster, you may think, well, that doesn't really apply to me. But it does. Your singing is just as important. Don't just think that it's for parents or grown-ups. Listen, I want to encourage you, if you're young especially, learn the songs that we sing together in church, and they will serve you for decades and decades. They'll turn your thoughts to God just when you need it. In fact, as I began to study Psalm 92 in preparation for this sermon, I was reminded instantly of a song that I used to sing when I was in university over 30 years ago. It was this psalm set to melody. I remembered it. No problem at all. I can't remember the sermons on Psalm 92, but I certainly remember the songs. Sing, sing your praises to the Lord. It's good because it brings glory to God and he deserves it. And it's good because it's good for us. Now we also learn in those first five verses of the Psalm what we should sing about and what we're to give thanks for. We see that we're to sing about the Lord's character we're to sing about the Lord's works, and we're to sing about the Lord's plans, or as verse 5 puts it, his thoughts. Look with me at verse 2 for just a minute. There are two aspects of his character that are highlighted there. It says, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. Now think of what that would do for our outlook on life if we were to faithfully begin each day with praise for God and his character trait of steadfast love. The scriptures, of course, are filled with testimony that God loves his people and, and that his love is steadfast. It doesn't waver. It doesn't fade. It is constant and strong. It's always at its maximum level. If we develop the habit of regularly praising God for his steadfast love in the morning, we'd know that we have his love and we have his presence with us no matter what we face in that day. What an encouragement that would be. And what a difference it would make if we ended all of our days thinking back over the day and acknowledging God's faithfulness, where we saw him at work. Maybe we didn't see it then, but looking back, we see it now there at the end of the day. You might remember that in Psalm 90, verse 14, the psalmist asks God to satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. 
Well, here in verse 2 of 92, is the psalmist is answering. He's saying, we do have your steadfast love. And verse 2 confirms that we're to praise Him for it. Then in verses 4 and 5, they teach us to praise God for His works. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Three times His work is mentioned. It's fitting that Israel, of course, would be commanded to stop working just one day in the week in order to recognize and value God's work. To not be focused on their work, but to remember His work. And that's true for us, too. If we're busy pursuing money and career to such an extent that we're constantly working, we're never resting, we will never have the opportunity to recount and remember God's steadfast love and His faithfulness to us. It will fade from our minds. How do you spend your day off? Do you occupy yourself only with recreation the whole day? Or do you include some time set aside to think about the works of God? Let me ask this. On your day off, are you more likely to have a quiet time then or on the days that you work? Maybe your day off would be a great time to catch up on reading God's Word, praising Him, considering His works. Brothers and sisters, don't neglect rest, and not just to refresh your body and your mind, but to pay attention to God and to give Him praise for all of His works, which are far greater than ours. And when we survey the Bible and we think about God's works, they really fall into three different categories or three different themes. First of all, we see in the Bible God's works of creation. We praise God for all that He's made. There's, in fact, nothing that God has made that we could replicate as human beings. Yes, God has given us creativity and intelligence and skill to build things and create things, but nothing that we make could rival or even come close to anything that God's made. One theologian has said, all angels and all men combined could not make one grasshopper. Yeah, that's right. A grasshopper. A grasshopper's better and greater and more complex and magnificent than anything that mankind has done. God deserves continuous praise for His works in creation. And secondly, when we look through the Bible at God's works, we can praise Him for His works of providence. God's providence is how He sustains and maintains all that He's created, including us. Of course, it's because of God's providence that fruit continues to grow on trees, that rivers run to the sea, even that your heart continues to beat right now. All of those are ultimately works of God's providence. He's intimately and constantly involved in everything that's happening in the universe. In fact, it says in the first chapter of Hebrews of Jesus that He upholds the universe by the word of His power. We praise God for His providence. And finally, we praise God for His greatest work, the work of redemption. Throughout all of history, God has been carrying out His work of saving sinful man from God's own just wrath and condemnation. The high point, of course, of God's great work of redemption is seen in the life and the death 
and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God's work of redemption centers on Jesus because Jesus went to the cross to shed his blood so that sinful people like you and I could be at peace with God. So when we're praising God for his works, we praise him for creation, we praise him for providence, and we praise him for his work of redemption. Listen, brothers and sisters, if you think ever, I can't think of what to praise God for. I can't think of what to pray and thank God for. Listen, think about those three categories, creation, providence, and redemption, and you will never run out of ideas of what to praise God for. The last line of verse 5 reminds us that we can also sing praise to God for His thoughts. The ESV translates that line, your thoughts are very deep. <laughs> Seems like an understatement. The Christian Standard Bible, or the CSB, translates it, how profound are your thoughts? I, I kind of like that translation better. It's a little more poetic. God's thoughts are profound. I, I mean, have you ever considered that the Bible tells us some of the most important thoughts of God? You can know God's thoughts because they're in the Scriptures. We can think of his thoughts in terms of his plans and his purposes and what he thinks about us. His plans and his purposes and what he thinks about us. The New Testament even says that since we've been given the Holy Spirit, we can know the thoughts of God as the Spirit illuminates our minds and gives us understanding in the Scripture. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 2 Verses 11 and 12, you might have read that in the plan for worship at home today. It says this in 1 Corinthians 2, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. The Spirit helps us know the thoughts of God when we read the Scripture of God. Now, when you and I look in the Scriptures and we look to the Holy Spirit dwelling in us to give us understanding about God's plans and purposes and what He thinks about us, oh, brothers and sisters, we are in a privileged position to plumb those deep and profound thoughts of God, to know what He's thinking. And, of course, the only appropriate response to knowing God's thoughts is to do what the psalmist is instructing. Give him thanks. Give him praise. But not everyone will praise God. And that leads us into the next six verses, verses 6 through 11, where we're urged to see his victory. First, we were to sing his praise, and now the psalmist wants us to see his victory in 6 through 11. The psalmist reminds us of three things there in the first several verses about the enemies that God is going to get the victory over. Those enemies are ignorant of God. They will flourish for now, but they'll be destroyed forever. They're ignorant of God. They flourish now, but they'll be destroyed forever. 
In verse 5, we saw that God's people filled with God's Spirit can know the thoughts of God. They're spiritually discerned. But immediately in verse 6, we see the opposite thing happening in the enemies of God. We're warned that the enemies of God can't know or understand God. The, the psalmist uses the word stupid. <laughs> they're stupid and they're fools. You know, by, by, by using that word stupid, which, by the way, is used in the ESV translation about 12 times, mostly in the book of Job and the Proverbs and in the prophets. We're not, he's not using it in the same way that maybe you heard it thrown around in middle school. He's speech, speaking about spiritual ignorance. People can be highly, highly educated they can be smart and yet stupid with regard to the Lord. Take, for example, Carl Sagan and Stephen Hawking. They were brilliant cosmologists. They're not alive anymore. But when they were alive, they had brilliant scientific minds to understand the cosmos. And yet they denied the existence of God, the very thing that the cosmos speaks most loudly about. They were stupid with regard to God. This is why we pray for people to come to Christ, brothers and sisters. We can give a testimony about the saving work of Christ. We can explain what the Bible teaches about the way of salvation, but God must work in the hearts and the minds of our non-Christian friends. Don't neglect to pray for your unbelieving friends. Pray that God would give them understanding. Pray that God would open their eyes and their minds and soften their hearts. Prayer for them is perhaps your greatest evangelistic tool. Who are you praying for that God would open their minds and would give them understanding? The next thing we learn about God's enemies is that they seem to flourish. Maybe they even grow in strength and power, not only in number. They sprout like grass, it says in verse 7. I wonder if you've ever felt like those who are opposed to God are actually getting stronger and those who love God are getting fewer and weaker. I feel like that all the time. I open up my newspaper and it seems like the good guys are losing and the bad guys are winning. And sometimes maybe you, you might even experience that in your workplace. But this is happening all over the world, even to this very day, even though the psalmist wrote this perhaps 3,000 years ago. I just saw this weekend that the Chinese government has continued to round up thousands and thousands of Muslim minorities in the western part of the country. The, they are separating them from separating families, children from parents, wives from husbands. They're shaving their heads and they're forcing them into intern camps, which they call re-education universities. This is wicked. This is awful. Sometimes it seems like those who are carrying out wicked injustices grow and get stronger, whether they're individuals or even governments. And sometimes they are. But when we see how the wicked flourish, we need to remember what will come of them. And look with me at verse 7 again. We see that. It says, 
beginning in verse 6, the fool cannot understand that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. And the reason is in verse 8. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. This is the really big emphasis of the psalm, verse 8. It's a thundering statement that comes right in the middle of the psalm. I don't think it's an accident that the psalm uses the name Lord, L-O-R-D, for God seven times. And this is the fourth use of that word Lord, three before it, three after it. God's enemies may be flourishing now, but God is always stronger. God is always in control. They will be destroyed. It's a certainty. And He will continue in power. You know, at first when I thought about titling this section and these verses, I thought to possibly call it, See His Enemies. But I think the emphasis is actually on the victory of the Lord. And verse 9 drives that home. The psalmist says, For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish, all evildoers shall be scattered. Now, of course, when we read this, we know that the wicked are flourishing still in this world. Oftentimes, they're gaining in strength. They're oppressing the righteous. And so we understand that this promise, this prediction, this certainty is actually the eventual defeat of God's enemies at the final judgment, the day of judgment that's coming. It's sometime in the future. It hasn't happened yet, but God will judge every single person, and the wicked will perish. But the Lord isn't the only one who sees his enemies defeated. The psalmist of the Lord does as well. Just as the Lord is on high forever, the psalmist of the Lord will be strengthened and given victory over their enemies as well. And we see that in verses 10 and 11. There the psalmist tells how the Lord strengthens him and gives him victory over my enemies. He's already given him the victory, in fact, he tells us. Look there at verse 10 with me. He uses a strange metaphor to describe how God strengthens him. He says, But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. Well, that's kind of strange. You see, the psalmist is saying that God has given him the strength and the power to have victory over his enemies like the deadly horn of a wild ox is used to defeat his enemies in the wild. Now, you may chuckle at the idea of a wild ox at maybe being dangerous, but believe me, I've seen many videos of wild animals battling in the wild, and wild oxen oftentimes defeat lions and tigers by goring them with their horns. It happens, and wild oxen shouldn't be taken lightly. And then the psalmist also says that the Lord has anointed him with fresh oil. Of course, it's a, a picture of blessing in some way, even perhaps could be the picture of a king being anointed, anointed for rule, anointed for victory over his enemies, strengthened by God. And what is the result of God's man, the psalmist, being strengthened and anointed by God? Well, it's verse 11. The downfall of my enemies is what he sees, and the doom of my evil assailants is what he hears. 
So just as God sits on high and will always have victory, he's strengthened his faithful follower, the psalmist, to win victory over his enemies. Now, how do we understand this? One of the most important things to remember about the Psalms is that Jesus said that they were about him, along with the rest of the Old Testament for that matter. (laughs) Jesus said after he had been resurrected from the dead in Luke 24, he was appearing to his apostles, his disciples. He says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. They're about him. Jesus says the Old Testament is about him. And so when we read the Psalms, we must know that the Psalms are either ultimately about Jesus or they're in the voice of Jesus, as if Jesus were speaking it. And I think that relates to our Psalm. In these verses 6 through 11, we can see that Christ actually best fits as the psalmist who's had his horn exalted and had fresh oil poured over him. He's had the anointing of the Lord and the strengthening of the Lord to have victory over his enemies, and he's seen it happen. Jesus was strengthened to obey unto death, and he was anointed by God as Messiah and King with the Holy Spirit to walk in obedience straight to the cross. Jesus' death and resurrection spelled the defeat of his enemies, and his greatest enemies were actually not those who crucified him. His and our greatest enemies are Satan, sin, and death. And he defeated them for the glory of God the Father and to rescue us. This is the gospel. This is the good news. What Jesus did on the cross and what he's speaking through the voice of this psalmist in Psalm 92. He has seen the defeat of his enemies. When Jesus obeyed the Father and went to the cross, he was taking on himself the punishment that we deserved for being the enemies of God. Yes, that's right. You heard me correctly. We all were enemies of God, even if you were raised in a Christian home. We were born in sin, every single one of us. We were ignorant of him. We were stupid, as he says in the psalm. And we were in rebellion against him. Each one of us had gone our own way, maybe through some false religion, trying to earn God's favor as if we could do that, or maybe we had gone our own way in wild living, being irreligious. But we all set ourselves against God and his anointed King, Jesus, until we heard the good news of Jesus Christ. And God opened our eyes. He worked in our hearts. Jesus is the Messiah of God who was sent by God because of his steadfast love for us and who paid for our disobedience on the cross and offered his righteousness to us as a free gift so that we could cross the battle line and go from being the enemies of God to being his dear sons and adopted daughters. What Jesus, when Jesus Christ hung on the cross and then rose again from the dead, he could literally see and hear the defeat of Satan's sin and death. It is finished, he said on the cross. Satan's end was proclaimed. And all of this was because of God's steadfast love. And because of that, 
because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, what God the Father has done in sending Christ His Son, anyone who repents of their sin and trusts in Christ can go from being an enemy of God to being one of the righteous. Not a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness that's been gifted to us. If you're not a Christian, you may, think of, you may not think of yourself as an enemy of God. You may be thinking, listen, I don't think that way. I'm very spiritual, pastor. But think of it this way. If God is your maker and God is the ruler of all creation, then you were designed to live in total allegiance to him and to worship him. And if Jesus is the king sent from God to make peace between us and God, if you continue rejecting Jesus, then you're the enemy of God. So it's not enough to say, well, yes, I agree, Jesus was a great teacher, or yes, Jesus taught great wisdom that we can learn from, or I like Jesus. No, he demands our allegiance and our worship to bow the knee to King Jesus. That's what it means to be his follower. That's what it means to become a Christian. That's what it means to leave the battle lines of the enemy and come to the side of the Lord. The good news of the gospel is that every single one of his followers, every single one of us, were once his enemies, but you can change sides. Won't you do that even today? Trust in Christ. Turn to Jesus. The Lord and his Messiah will have the victory over their enemies, and the future of the righteous is also already determined as well. We see that in verses 12 through 15. We see there that we should seek his fruitfulness. Seek his fruitfulness. They describe these verses, what will happen for those who are on the Lord's side. They're going to grow and they're going to be fruitful. Verse 12, he says, they'll flourish like the palm tree. Now, mind you, this is not the flourishing of the grass that's described of the wicked just above in the verses. That flourishing is only for a time. But this flourishing is for a long time. I don't know if you've ever had the chance to drive out on one of the highways out of Dubai and into the desert. And of course, as you're driving down those roads to the left and to the right, you see just dune after dune after dune, brown and tan sand everywhere. But then if you drive far enough, you might come to a big patch of green. And as it comes closer and closer, you realize it's a farm. And that kind of a farm is oftentimes a palm tree farm. And there it is, this patch of lush green trees in the midst of a dry desert. It's green, it's lush. Many of those trees, of course, are destined for the boulevards and the green spaces of Dubai or Abu Dhabi. But the green of those farms, it always brings to my mind health and vitality in the midst of a desert with very little water. They're growing strong just like the people of God. The people of God are well-watered in the metaphor, fertilized and growing, healthy and strong. We have a palm tree in the front of our villa, right by our front gate. Some of you have seen it, many of you have seen it. And if you looked at the small square of earth that it's planted on, you, you'd wonder how it is so strong, so tall, so green. And the only explanation is that its roots go deep. 
It's drawing strength and sustenance from the water table that's deep beneath it. That's like the people of God. They're sinking their roots into the Lord. They're drawing their sustenance from Him. And because of that, they flourish like trees, big, green, strong trees, like palm trees or cedar trees, unlike the wicked who are like the grass that wilts and goes away in the afternoon. Now, verse 13 tells us they're planted in the house of the Lord and flourish in the courts of our God. Of course, this is an image of growing in God's presence. Even as they grow old, the psalmist goes on to say in verse 14, they continue to flourish. They will still bear fruit in old age, he says. They are ever full of sap and green. In the first two chapters of Genesis, God blesses all of creation, including the creatures that he's made, including man and woman, and he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. It's just another way of say, saying flourish, flourish, grow strong, spread out, grow in number. Now, what's being described here, of course, in these images of trees and is spiritual version of fruitfulness and flourishing. Of course, when it says that they have sap and green, even in their old age, you may know what that means. Of course, when a tree is green, it means it's alive. When it turns brown and the leaves turn brown, it's dead and it gets dried out because sap is that liquid that moves through the trunk and out into the branches and out to the leaves of the tree to provide and transport sustenance to it, to keep it alive. It's hard to break the branch of a living tree that has sap all throughout it. It's easy to break a branch that's dead and dry. But it's saying that we, as we grow old in the Lord, if we stay connected to Him, if we draw our sustenance from Him, we will stay full of sap and we'll be green. Of course, it reminds me of the parable of the soils that Jesus told in the Gospels. He told the parable about the sower who threw the seed out, and of course, the first seed landed on the path and it didn't grow, but then there were three seeds that landed on different soils. And the second and the third seed grew into plants, but the second seed was withered by the sun and died. The third seed grew up, but it was choked out by the weeds and the thorns around it. It was only the fourth seed that grew into a plant and eventually bore fruit 30, 60, 100 times what it took to sow it. This is just like what we see here. Fruitfulness, prospering spiritually as we get older. Even as our bodies deteriorate, we should prosper spiritually. Even in our old age, we can still be fruitful and still growing in the Lord. You see, there's, there's no retirement age for being a Christian. Those of you who are young, I wonder, do you have in your mind that you're going to live for Jesus now and then maybe rest spiritually in your old age? Oh, brothers and sisters, put that away. Don't think like that. Your Christian walk of sanctification should continue until you go to the grave. Never stop growing in Christ. No matter how much you've grown in Christ, there's still more to go. And Christ will supply the strength to finish, even as your bodily strength fades. J.I. Packer is 
an amazing theologian. He is now in his 90s. And when he was 88, he wrote a book called Finishing Our Course with Joy. He wrote it specifically for Christians who are getting older. And he says in that book, runners in a distance race, like jockeys in a horse race, always try to keep something in reserve for a final sprint. And my contention is going to be that, so far as our bodily health allows, we should aim to be found running the last lap of the race of our Christian life, as we would say, flat out. The final sprint, so I urge, should be a sprint indeed. Oh, those of you who are older, are you easing off as you age, or are you pressing into the Lord? Are you leaning forward toward Him? Do you see the last 20 years of your life or so as a stretch of time to spiritually sprint and run flat out, as J.I. Packer says? Brothers and sisters, keep pressing on. Keep leaning into the Lord. Keep seeking to grow in Him. Look for ways to serve in the church, no matter how old you are. Look for younger people to pour your life into, whether they ask for it or not. Keep learning more about the riches of God's Word. It's inexhaustible. Don't give up attacking patterns of sin in your life. Don't excuse sin as if it's your right to hang on to sin in your old age. <laughs> no, it's not. If you're older, it's not too late. Ask the Lord to keep working on you. And if you're younger, determine now that you will run the race of faith and sprint across the finish line at the end of your life. And the best way to set that pace is right now. Giving God praise in the morning for His steadfast love and recalling His faithfulness every evening as well. Verse 13 describes righteous trees Righteous, the righteous, excuse me, planted like trees in the house of the Lord. And of course, that's a reference to the temple. But for you and I, this verse points to the importance, of course, as of the local church in seeking to be fruitful as we age in the Lord. Now, yes, we are, spiritually speaking, in the courts of the Lord if we've trusted in Christ. But the temple, in many respects, in our day and time, is the local church. There's plenty of New Testament passages that tell us that the church is God's temple where His Spirit and His presence dwell. The local church is where God's people live, so to speak, while we await the return of Jesus. If you want to be fruitful in the long race of faith in this life, make sure you become an active member of a local church. Don't just visit church. Don't just taste test with church. <laughs> Join a church. Become a member of a church. Plant yourself in a church, as it were. Be committed. That's the way to sink your spiritual roots deep and prepare for growth and fruitfulness to the very end of your life. In verse 15, which is the last verse, the psalmist actually brings us all the way back to where he started, declaring praise of God. The Lord is upright, he says. In other words, he's true and completely good. He's my rock, the psalmist says. Even though enemies abound, God is unmoved, and he provides the safety that his people need throughout his life. And of course, Jesus could say this as well. He is my rock. Jesus stood firm 
on the Father. And the psalmist tells us, and God is holy. There is no unrighteousness in him. We can trust him because he's entirely good. Praise the exalted Lord who gains the victory over his enemies and blesses us with spiritual fruitfulness. Oh, there's so much to praise God for here. We sing his praise, we see his victory, and we seek his fruitfulness. Brothers and sisters, what an encouragement this psalm is. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you sent Jesus, the anointed king, the one for whom you strengthen his horn so that he defeated his and our enemies, Satan, sin, and death. And Lord, we know that this world is filled with people who still, unbeknownst to them largely, are in allegiance to Satan, sin, and death. We pray, Father, that you would open the eyes of so many of the people around us who don't know you. We pray that you would give them insight so that they know you, so that they could join with your anointed king in victory over Satan, sin, and death. And they could say with us that we are like trees planted in the courts of the Lord. Oh Lord, praise you, praise you that you strengthen us. Turn our hearts to praise, Lord, in Christ's name, amen.